Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you again. Thank you for having us. Um, Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the privilege to witness those who would seek to hide your word in their hearts for the purpose that they would not uh, sin against you. And, and, And Father, we ask that as we would look into your word this morning, that you would speak to our hearts and that we would uh, hear your voice, that we would be blessed, that we would be changed for being here. We cast ourselves upon you for your blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I think it's true as um, Christians, it's uh, you know our privilege to have an impact in the world, uh, to be able to influence others. You know, influence others in a in a good way. You know, there's lots of uh, people that want to be an influence. Uh, sometimes uh, they're an influence for bad or for evil. But in contrast to that, we want to have an impact, an influence, uh, change the lives of people around us. And so, as Christians, what's the best way to do that? Well, of course, the Bible's uh, very clear in in how a Christian is best suited to. To make an impact in our uh, communities, in our neighborhoods, uh, in our family. And often uh, the Bible corrects our thinking in some of these areas. You know, some um, people think, well, you know, we need to to be uh, good teachers. And we say that that's true. We need good teaching, solid, sound teaching. Uh, We know the Bible exhorts that, uh, exhorts us to do that, to strive for that. Uh, That's true. We need to to listen for sure. but, you know, Paul says in writing to Timothy that it's the, the full mature man, that the mature Christian that, that would have the most impact. You know, and so he would say something like, um, you know, study to show yourself approved unto God that you might be a workman, a, a mature Christian and have, have this a maximum impact. And so as we think about maturity, how is maturity gauged in the Christian life? Is it gauged by what we know? Well, it's not. Christian maturity, I suggest to you this morning, is gauged by the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? First, love. Love. The Lord Jesus Christ, um, before he went back to heaven, said to his disciples uh, that he was going to leave them on the earth. He was going to invite people to come in to the assembly. And observe one thing. What would be that one thing that they would observe that would make an impact? Their love for one another, right? Their love for one another. So the fruit of the Spirit is how God gauges Christian maturity. It's not by the gifts of the Spirit. Now we understand that the gifts of the Spirit are important. You know, we need Bible teaching and we need uh, those gifts exercised to build up the body. As we think of this concept this morning of the maturity or having the maximum impact, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And secondly, it's joy. How important is joy in the Christian life? Is it important? Can you think of a verse that tells us it's important? Nehemiah. Does anybody know a verse from Nehemiah about joy? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Is joy happiness? No. 
It's not. It's something far beyond being happy, right? Happy or happiness is linked to happenings. Quite frankly, sometimes our happenings, those things that are going on in our life, are not that great. Uh, Joy is beyond that. And that same passage, we've been thinking about love and the Lord Jesus inviting people to come in and see our love for one another. The Lord Jesus says to his disciples, my joy I give unto you. Not as the world gives. My joy. His joy was far beyond that. The, the writer to the Hebrews could tell us that for the joy that was set before him. Or sorry, the Philippians could write. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so the joy of the Lord Jesus. So we want to turn to Acts chapter 16. And think about if joy can really make a difference. We've heard uh, this uh, exhortation of this verse from Galatians chapter 6 of the fruit of the Spirit is first love, then it's joy. And we want to think about can joy make a difference? And so uh, Acts chapter 16 is Paul on his second missionary journey. That's how chapter 16 begins. Uh, he moves out. He uh, moves out from, from Asia to Europe with the gospel. Uh, he gets there, and uh, it's not exactly as he thought it would be. Not very long until he's thrown in jail. Uh, that's verse 20. It says, They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set before them, or sorry, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So says the Philippian jailer, after he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it had such an impact in his family, his changed life, that his whole family trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's what we learn as we read through the The book of Acts is that first comes a decision for Jesus Christ, right? We put our faith in Christ and then comes baptism. And and so 
we would expect that that's exactly what happened here. The Philippian jailer, his life was changed. He put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was baptized. And when it says his family was baptized, we assume that uh, it was because of the influence of the father with his wife and his children and um, maybe even grandchildren. It's not a stretch to... Uh, think about his family being a large family that might include even aunts or uncles. Right? His whole family came to faith in Jesus Christ. His whole family was baptized. What was he like? What was his temperament? What was he feeling? Well, we don't have to speculate. It says he was rejoicing. That's the word for joy. He was experiencing the joy of the Lord. He was rejoicing. Hey, he saw this exactly, this exact emotion, this feeling in the lives of Paul and Silas. Were they upset? I mean, they had every reason to be. They'd been beaten and cast into stocks and and misused. But what were they doing? They were singing. It says they were praying and singing. They were experiencing joy. And so... That joy that that Paul and Silas experienced had an impact in the life of the Philippian jailer. And that joy he experienced had a life, an impact in his family. And so this really sets the, the, the foundation, if you will, for what we want to consider this morning. Now, this was, as we said, Paul's second missionary journey. Now, uh, we know that Paul had three missionary journeys. We know that uh, Paul ended his life at the book of Acts being in a house arrest in Rome, right? And that's how Paul ended his life. He spent the last two years of his life in prison. Now, it was a house arrest, but he didn't have the freedom to go out. He was uh, chained to a guard and, and uh, under house arrest. And then eventually uh, he was taken, they tell us, out into the Apian Way, and he gave his life for the Lord Jesus. He was beheaded for the gospel, for the Savior whom he loved. And so that's how his life ended. But that wasn't here. That would be maybe 12 or 13 years later. Now, we want to think this morning about uh, those three epistles, if you will, that Paul wrote from prison. Well, they say there's four, but three specifically that we want to think about. So we were to say this morning, what are the three uh, prison epistles that, that the Apostle Paul wrote? What would we say they are? It would be Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. <clears throat> We've been thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace happiness. What's the epistle to the Ephesians about? If you had to place one word over it, what would the word be? The Ephesians? I mean, it's in there. But what about love, do you think? Is love in the book of Ephesians? Well, hey, we remember the second epistle written to the Ephesians, which was the second epistle written to the Ephesians. Right? What's the second epistle written to the Ephesians? This is really stretching you this morning. Who can help us out? Yeah, Who, where is it, brother? Laodicea, right? John wrote an epistle to the church at Ephesus too, didn't he? He wrote a letter to them. And you remember, what does he say at the beginning of the letter? What was the problem in Ephesus? They had left their first love. Not lost, left. Right? And so uh, love is important in the book of Ephesians or the epistle to the Ephesians. 
to remaining consistent to our thinking this morning, if we were going to say, what is the epistle about joy, which one would it be? It would have to be Philippians, right? Okay, so turn to Philippians chapter 1. We've tried to think about how uh, important joy is. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's joy that uh, impacts lives. We have that from Acts chapter 16. We saw it in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, We saw it in the life of the Philippian jailer. And so we turn to the uh, book of Philippians, to the epistle to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. And if we were going to go through and count the times the word joy or gladness or rejoicing is used in this epistle, we would find almost 20 times, 19 times, I think, the word joy or gladness. More than a dozen times, um, he tells us about the mind. You know, joy is not linked to circumstances, right? It's not linked to happenings. It's something that goes on in the mind. And so the victorious Christian life is lived in the mind. And so that's why uh, there's this great battle going on in the world today, the, the cosmos, this battle for the minds, the people of God. And so we want to think about joy in the context of uh, Philippians. And so uh, Paul, lays out, um, uh, Paul lays out four things, one in each chapter, things that will rob us of our joy. Now, the devil's very aware that, hey, way back, Nehemiah's day, the Lord said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so the devil is very aware that a Christian who is experiencing joy is effective in their Christian testimony and in their witness. And so he wants to rob us of our joy. You know, Warren uh, Wiersbe's book uh, on Philippians. Have you anybody read any uh, Warren Wiersbe's stuff? It's, uh, I think it's entitled, well, I know it's entitled, Be Joyful. Right? Be Joyful. It beats being happy. Being joyful beats being happy. And so he has a simple layout. We'll use some of those things. So, uh, chapter 1. It's interesting to me that so we think about these three epistles, okay? We think about these three epistles, uh, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and we think about uh, what Paul would uh, remind, you know, this is like I say, 11 years later, what would the Apostle Paul remind the Philippians about? What would be the emphasis? Well, what's interesting to me is that uh, in chapter 1, The robber of our joy is circumstances. And so he's wanting to tell the Philippians that, hey, circumstances don't rob us of our joy. And so listen to some of these verses. Um, It begins uh, here, we'll begin in verse uh, 9. And he says this, or sorry, yeah, yeah, verse 9. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And he says this, verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so verse 12, Paul says, I want to 
I want you to know, brethren, that the things, the circumstances that he was in, this idea of being in prison, actually wasn't a negative, it was a positive. And so what's interesting to us this morning is that, you know, 11 years later in writing to the Philippians, that the Apostle Paul would have to remind them of that. Because they knew that. You know, uh, he's saying that, hey, I'm in prison, but it's actually a, uh, the word is a pioneer advance of the gospel. Like, he's meeting people in prison that he would never have had a chance to reach, apart from his circumstances. And so what's remarkable to me is that he had to remind the Philippians of that. You know, this is the, the assembly in Philippi. Well, it would be hard to fathom this morning that, hey, maybe the jailer's still there, right? Do you think the jailer's in the audience at Philippi? I mean, it's only 11 years. Uh, Maybe his wife's still sitting in the assembly. Maybe his kids, his grandkids. And so you think of, as Paul is reminding them of how his circumstances have actually fallen out for, for the good, for the positive. You would think somebody would say, you know, maybe they say, Grandpa, isn't that how the assembly started here? You know, what seemed as a, as a, a tragedy, a, a, misjudge, a misjustice in the life of the Apostle Paul, that it actually worked out to the good. But often we have to be reminded of these things, right? We forget our circumstances. Often they rob us of our joy. Do you have power over your circumstances? Do you? You don't, do you? I mean, if it's the weather, you have power over the weather. Can you control the weather? No. Hey, in our part of the world, we have rush hour traffic. Do you guys have rush hour traffic in Miami? You ever find it frustrating? You ever been frustrated in traffic? Huh? Yeah. You ever been frustrated? We have uh, freeways, and so... You know, I drive the freeway every day. And, um, you know, you kind of gauge where the traffic's going to be. You know, it should be rush hour going out. It's okay going in. And then all of a sudden, the traffic stopped on my side. And uh, you come up, and there's an accident on the other side of the road, on the other side of the freeway, right? But there's an accident on my side of the freeway, too. You know why? Because somebody slowed down a look, and somebody ran into them because they were looking, too. And so I'm frustrated with that. You know, why wouldn't they pay attention? Well, I can't control my circumstances. We can't control our circumstances. But um, that's not victory. That's not where victory comes from, just the, the, the admitting that I can't control my circumstances. How did the Apostle Paul get victory uh, still experiencing joy in spite of his circumstances? Well, we have it in verse 21. Listen to verse 21, what he says. For me to live is Christ. That's how he was able to experience joy in spite of his circumstances. Paul was not a double-minded man. He had a single mind. He had one purpose in his life. For him to live was Christ. To die was gain. And that gave him victory. He, he was able to see uh, that his circumstances were actually from the Lord. Paul never 
considered himself a prisoner of Nero. In fact, it's remarkable to think about it. He would write his prison epistles. He would say sometimes to the Christians, I'm going to come and visit you maybe. If Nero gives me a weekend pass. He says, no, I'm going to come and visit you if the Lord wills. Paul was never a prisoner of Nero. He was always a prisoner of whose? Jesus Christ. And so he understood that because he had this single mind to serve Christ, that his circumstances did not rob him of his joy. Chapter 2. So uh, I think we would admit that sometimes our circumstances can rob us of our joy. The solution is the single mind living for Christ. Nothing that comes through our life, nothing that comes through the life of, of a Christian is apart from the will of God. Right. And so uh, and in chapter one, Paul would say that, that that actually the the being chained to the praetorium, this uh, Caesar's guard, if you will, these elite soldiers, he said, actually, it's working out. And these would be people I'd never have the opportunity to meet. And yet some of those we read from the New Testament came to faith in Jesus Christ and it would likely have happened when Paul was chained to them in in Philippi. All right. Chapter two. What's the problem in chapter 2? If it's, if it's circumstances in chapter 1 that can rob us of our joy, what is it in chapter 2? Well, it's people. Think people can rob us of our joy? Yes. Listen to some of these words. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Chapter 1, it's circumstances. Chapter 2, it's people. Are people self-absorbed? You think that's true? I see a fire truck go by. And we immediately think, boy, I hope that's not my neighbor's house burning down. Right? Or uh, we see a picture. Picture of the assembly. Who do you look for first? (laughs) Yeah, I am there. There I am. I remember at a camp, they had uh, dozens of photos from the camp and there were young native kids we were fostering and uh, Kevin, I remember Kevin sitting beside me and as the pictures were flow, you know, you know, scrolling by, he would every time he was there, he said, there I am there, Mr. Brennan. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I see you. There I am there, Mr. Brennan. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I see you. There I am there, Mr. Brennan. I'm like, Kevin, I see you. I'm looking for me. I'm not looking for you. Where am I in that? Are people self-absorbed? Absolutely. But you know, there was one man who walked on this earth who was never self-absorbed. He never thought about himself. And so the victory, allowing people not to rob us of our joy is, verse 5, this mind, he says, let this mind be in you which was also 
in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And so people can rob us of our joy. The battle again is in the mind. How do we get victory? Will we look to the Lord Jesus Christ? There were people who did that. And so Paul gives at least two illustrations in chapter two of people who were victorious In the mind, they didn't allow people to rob them of their joy. And so the first was Timothy. Uh, Verse 19, he says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. That I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Now notice this, for I have no one like minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. And so we don't allow, we don't want to allow people to rob us of our joy. Well, how is their victory? It's by serving others, by thinking of others. And you've heard that. You've heard this acronym for joy, right? Jesus first, others second, yourself last, right? And so it works. It's Philippians. And so the Apostle Paul writes about Timothy. Then he writes about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is the same who had the the burden of others around him. He was concerned about others before himself. And that's the secret to joy, not to allowing um, people to rob us of our joy. All right, chapter 3. What's the robber of joy in chapter 3? Circumstances, chapter 1. People, chapter 2. Chapter 3. Things. Eleven times from verse seven onwards talks about things. Verse seven says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so things, can things rob us of our joy? Absolutely. It's easy to be consumed with things. And so, Paul says, the solution is to count all those things. It's lost. How was he able to do that? What was the foundation of that? Well, it's in further on in the chapter. Uh, he says in verse 19, uh, he's contrasting two concepts, two groups of people whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He says, 
Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Paul had a heavenly vision. You know, um, sometimes you hear this expression. He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You ever heard that expression? Is it true? It's not biblical. Uh, Paul, in fact, says the solution is, is to have a heavenly vision. To be reminded that our citizenship is in heaven. It's not of the earth. We are not an earthly people. And so the King James translates it this way. We look for the Lord to come. That's what we're looking for. You know that it's interesting in scripture that our life, our Christian life began with a look. Isaiah says to his people, uh, quoting the Lord, it's the Lord speaking. He says this, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God, there's none else. So our Christian life begins with a look, beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. How is it maintained? How is it sustained? How do we move forward? Hebrews chapter 2, right? Is that right? Is that where it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So it's maintained by looking to Jesus. Paul tells us the Christian life is going to end with a look. We're reminded that we're not citizens of this country, that we're a heavenly people. And so we're looking. That's how we, we live above things. And so we have this opportunity to be rich in the next life. Right? How does that happen? By being poor in this life. And so the Apostle Paul understood this. Those things he said that he used to count of value, his reputation. Was he concerned in the early days of his reputation? Absolutely. He said when discussing these things... Uh, that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, trained in the highest schools. I mean, Paul had his PhD, his doctorate in theology from the highest school in the land. What did he consider it in the light of eternity? You know what he called it? Call it rubbish. Hey, when we put the garbage out to the road and the garbage man comes and picks it up, are you... Sad or glad? You're glad, right? You never think about it again, do you? You're like, I'm glad that's gone. That's what Paul said about his reputation. All those things he used to value. He said, I count them as rubbish. I don't think of them anymore. He had this vision to know Christ. You know, the power of his resurrection. So that's how he was able to live above things. All right, so chapter 1, it's circumstances. For me to live is Christ, that single mind. Chapter 2, it's people, right? It's people. And so the solution, not to allow people to rob us of our joy, let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others, thinking of others first, our example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, things are what can rob us of our joy. How do we get beyond that? We have a vision uh, that we're not an earthly people, we're a heavenly people, that our citizenship is not here. 
It's in heaven. All right. Chapter four robs us of our joy in chapter four. Verse six, be anxious for nothing. Can worry rob you of your joy? Well, I mean, I guess it could be said that there's not enough worry in the church, right? You think that's true? You guys don't do enough worrying. Um, You think, well, what does that mean? I thought we're not to worry. Well, we're not to worry about our own things, right? But we're certainly to worry about the needs of others, right? And that's actually the same word Paul uses uh, back in chapter 2, the verse we read. He says, I have no one who's like-minded who will sincerely care Sincerely care for your state. It's the same word, the anxious. Hey, Timothy was not concerned about himself, but he was worried for others. Paul was worried for others of how they were doing, but not for himself. And so he says, listen, if it comes to you, don't let worry affect you. What's the solution to worry? Well, it's right there. He said that by prayer... And supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The solution to worry is pray. Does prayer work? Does God answer prayer? Does God always answer prayer? Yes. Mark chapter 5. Three stories together. I mean, you don't have to turn to it. It's a passage you know very well. It's this story of the Lord Jesus crossing over to the, uh, the sea, to the, the country of the Gadarenes. And he meets a man uh, in the tombs. He tried chaining him many times. He was wild, unclothed. Not just demon-possessed, possessed by a legion of demons. And so... Uh, The Lord Jesus, in casting out the demons, the demons speak to the Lord Jesus and they actually pray to him. Right? The word is beg. They earnestly beg him. They ask him uh, not to cast them into the abyss, but rather let us go into the pigs. Uh, Then just a little bit further down, uh, you have the people from the town. They come. They beg the Lord Jesus to leave them. Uh, and he does that. Then, then below that, the, the man who was a demon-possessed, uh, he begs the Lord Jesus that he might go with him. Right? Uh, that's what he asks for. And then underneath that, uh, when the Lord Jesus comes back, you have Jairus who comes to the Lord Jesus and begs him that he might come to his house and he begs him that he might heal his daughter. And so uh, Graham Scroggy in his book Method in Prayer shows you that um, there's the petition, right? There's the petition and there's the desire, right? Sometimes we petition God for something, And sometimes our petition doesn't always match our desire. And so he shows that in all of those cases, the Lord Jesus answered. So in the case of the demons, their petition was that they wouldn't be cast into the abyss. Right? But that they might be, sorry, their petition was they wouldn't be cast into the abyss, that they might go into the pigs. What was their desire? They didn't want to be lost. 
So the Lord Jesus answered their petition. But of course, they didn't get their desire, did they? Because then the pigs ran down into the lake and drowned. Um, In the second case, these people uh, who desired the Lord Jesus, that was their position, that petition, that was their desire. He answered both. They desired that he would leave. They petitioned him that he would, and he did. Then in the third story, the the man who had been cleansed of the demons, what was his petition? Well, his petition was that he might be with the Lord. What was his desire? That he might show his thanksgiving to the Lord for what he'd done. The Lord didn't give him his petition, did he? But he gave him his desire, right? He said to him, go home and tell them, people, what great things God has done for you. So although he didn't get his petition, he got his desire. And then in the story of Jairus, he got both his petition answered and his desire. He desired the Lord Jesus to come to his house and to heal his daughter. And the Lord Jesus did both. Paul writes to the Philippians, the solution for worry is prayer. And when that happens, it says that um, the peace of God, which is better than understanding... That's how it's to be translated. Better than understanding. The peace of God is better than understanding. There's lots of things in the world I don't understand. But you know that I know this from earlier on in the book of Philippians. That one day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. And he's going to make all things right. And every knee will bow... And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. That's going to happen. And so, rather than worry, I can pray. And then the word is this better than understanding. The peace of God, which is better than understanding, will guard my heart. Right? It will guard my heart. It will keep my heart. And so a Christian can experience joy in spite of their circumstances, in spite of people. Um, Sometimes people are hard to get along with, right? That's true. Uh, I think think, um, that uh, Warren Worsby quotes Charles Schultz. Are you familiar with Charles Schultz? Anybody know who Charles Schultz is? Yeah, he wrote Peanuts, right? Charlie Brown, that's what he's famous for. And so he's got a picture. It was one that Charles Schultz wrote. And, and, um, and it's Linus. Lucy saying to him, you can't be a doctor. You uh, hate mankind. And Linus says, I don't hate mankind. It's people I can't stand. I love mankind. And so sometimes it's people. The solution is keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved people. He served people. Sometimes it's things. You want to remember that we're not citizens of this country. Our citizenship is in heaven and we are waiting, simply passing through as aliens, waiting for the Lord Jesus to come. And it's not worry. 
It's prayer knowing that when we commit it to the Lord, He hears, He answers, and He does what's best for us. Who is this for? Well, in every chapter, book of Philippians, and just close with this, it's for chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. Chapter 3, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, therefore, my beloved brethren, long for, sorry, therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. It's in Christ, all these blessings for, reserved for. How do you get into Christ? Well, we don't have to go outside this story to know, right? The person was asked to ask you today, uh, I want that joy. I want to be able to live above my circumstances, not be affected by people or things, not to allow worry to devour me. How could I experience these things? Well, they're really asking, what must I do to be saved? And Romeo, what would you say? What must you do to be saved? And then what would you say? You must read your Bible every day. And you must pray every day. You must walk by faith. Whoa, 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 I appreciate that, brother. But um, we'll have to say we could, do a li- we could do a little better than that. I was hoping when you said, what must I do to be saved? You were going to quote Paul from Acts 16, which is where we started. Verse 31. What does it say there? Paul said, "What must, or the, the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how a person gets into Christ, in the Lord, by faith. Hey, the Christian life, Christian life, the victorious life, joy, above happiness, quote, and with Warren Wiersbe said, hey, be joyful. It beats being happy. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, what he continues to do for us even now, that he ever lives, stands in your presence to make intercession on our behalf. Father, we're of all people most blessed, not because we deserve it, but because of your boundless grace. And for that, we give thanks. We thank you for each family that's here. We pray a blessing in each life. And Father, we would know your presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus in a very real way today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.